Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Bob Weber and Bob Larson. Morning, guys. Hey, Brad. Uh, good morning, Brad. It's great to have you with us. And as always, if you have any questions or would like us to address any topics, send us an email to bci at ksu.edu and share the podcast with a friend as you, as you listen. Today, we're going to talk about a couple different topics. We're going to talk about the changes in marbling grades and, and what's happening with select beef. We'll also talk about how many heifers to save as we think about our weaned calves this year and a decision support survey that Dr. Weber's been working on. Before we get into that, I, I, we talk a lot about sustainability. We've had some good sustainability discussions in the past, and, and I wanted to just kind of look at some of the numbers because it's really pretty impressive as, as we think about the changes. And I want to ask you guys, uh, as we look at 1975 to 2017, and look at some of the USDA numbers, we, we know beef production has gone up about 9%. So total beef produced has gone up about 9%. If we look at the total cattle, it's gone down. What percent do you think it's gone down between 1975 and 2017? Wow. So even even though the actual tonnage of tonnage beef of products, beef has gone up by nine yeah. percent, how much has uh, the cow you know, total cow total cattle inventory gone down? Well, uh, I've seen some of these numbers, so I think I'm in the ballpark at least. I'm going to say thirty percent. Okay. I'm going to say a full third, 33%. <laughs> full third. It's gone down 29%. Went from oh. 132 million to 93 million. That's pretty impressive from a, you know, again, from a sustainability. If you're producing more Absolutely. consumable product with fewer uh, factories out there. Okay. And total grain harvested has gone up or down, you think? 1975 to 2017. Oh, I. I guess I was assuming up, but because I know total, yields are total up. grain. Yeah. yeah, total grain has gone up. Total grains up by about twenty-two percent. How about acres of corn needed to produce beef? That's up uh, or down? I'd say it's gone down. Yeah, less cattle. What do you think? Uh, it's down. Down by about twenty percent. Forty-six percent. Forty-six percent. Holy so cow! Total, so total acres of harvested corn needed to produce beef went from one hundred and twelve million to uh, 69 million. Uh, yeah, so that's decreased inventory plus increased corn productivity, right? And so the total absolutely. acres. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the acres went down. So the corn, and I think that's a twofold thing. Yes, is, yeah. as the, it, 46%, it, that's huge. Though. That is huge. That's a huge so reduction. If you're looking at land footprint, that that would be another example of more efficiency. Improved sustainability. So I, I just thought those numbers were interesting as we kick but, off our conversation and, and we think about how much it's changed, and, and that's a 30-year period, roughly, and what's going to happen in the next 30 years. Hopefully, we continue to improve some of that efficiency. As we look to the future, an interesting article came out that we saw this morning, and it actually uh, was a white paper put out by the Red Angus Association, and, and the title was Phasing Out Select Beef. And what they talked about was how the, the amount of select beef has been decreasing over time as we see more choice beef. And one of their, one of their things that they speculated was uh, it's being intentionally phased out for the right reasons because consumer preferences. Consumers price, like the, yeah, the price choice. Differences. Yeah. But they theorized by 2025, it could be as small as 5% of the beef supplies. And, and, are you and guys buying that? Are, are they saying it'll just become like a no roll at that point? Yeah, it'll be it well. It'll be so small as to be insignificant. Do you yeah. think it's going to go that low? I, uh, man, I I would have said if you'd asked me that ten years ago, I would have 
said no. That that I thought sucked beef had a pretty pretty significant place. And actually, I I would have said that there was a certain segment of consumers that really liked that. But uh, but I would agree that 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 has changed a lot in ten years. Yep. There's yeah the. I, I, I dug up some uh, notes from an, an old slide I have that had uh, percent select and choice and prime um, through uh, 2009. And basically from the mid-90s to 2008, 2009, we were stagnant in terms of change in percent choice. Um, roughly about 53 or 54%, somewhere in there. Bounced around a little bit year to year. Um, about 33 to 35% select. Um, and so that number's been... You know, going down and, dramatically, and, and if you think back to that time frame, you know, so ten years ago, ten to fifteen years ago, I mean, there were some there were some market segments that were actually targeting select beef. You know, in the grocery store, in the in the in the meat case, they were they were promoting that select carcass, and it, you know, it, it looked leaner. It is leaner, yep. and and they were actually, and that's why I would have said that it's going to have a place in the market for a long time, but I may be wrong. Yeah, I think there's. So what do you the, think's driving that change? I mean, well, it's a pretty dramatic change because they talk about a decrease of 17, 18 percent last year in the in the percent well, of yeah. select. Yeah. So I think economic signal, right? So you know, making cattle that grade upper two thirds choice um, qualify for a variety of the quality based programs generates more dollars for mm -hmm. for fed cattle. Um, you mentioned programs changing. You know, certified Hereford beef, for example, right. they used were to be a select kind yeah. of product. Um, they are now a choice product, and yeah. part of that's you know the Consumer demand plus the genetic supply. trend. Yeah. So the supply of cattle that meet um, a higher grade spec um, has gone up. So, um, well, and another thing that might be, you know, there's still an interest by a, a segment of the population to have a fairly lean meat product, but I think that's less in the last ten years. Probably I think less there's fat kind of, concern in our. I think there's a less less for a, a, a concern from a health standpoint of at least some marbling. I'm not saying go out and just eat gristle but um <laughs> but i think that 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 kind of opened the door for a, a little bit heavier marbled meat but, cut that, that the the consumer is willing to buy and, and i think that's it's really impressive from an industry response standpoint because like you said bob the, the from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s we were we right didn't at, see a lot no. of change and it stayed about the same and, and we don't have a lot more new genetic tools. We've got some, but we've improved most of slightly. This, yeah, most of this benefit would have been done using the tools we've had for a long time, EPDs and, you know, some well, and, and traits. You think about, you know, how long does it take us to turn over two generations of cows? Um, it takes 10 and, years. Yeah, ten, at least 10, <laughs> yeah. maybe 15. Um, so, you know, we've had improvements. So in, in progress for a while to get. Right. We had to feed in lots of improved genetics over time to get enough of the cows rolled over and selection applied via, you know, there's a fair number of commercial producers that go out and seek bulls that have better marbling potential, no doubt. But there's lots of them that didn't. Right. And so they were inheriting the genetic trend from their seed stock vendor. Exactly. And it took long. I mean, it took a while to get enough difference in marbling potential built into both seed stock herds and then by gene flow into the commercial herds mm -hmm. to actually achieve that. And so it's it's a long term. We don't see that on the commercial herds. If you're selling your calves at weaning or even after a backgrounding phase, yep. you, you don't see that marbling potential right. at that stage. And you, right. and you don't really get paid for it. Either. And you don't get paid for it. So that's well, interesting. It may, be, it may be harder to get out that last little bit. Yeah. I mean, so the big, if you make changes like that, 
the big changes can occur early, but then as you get down to the end and see so if that trend can It'll be really interesting because, you know, again, something else could change that we're not foreseeing that could bring back, you know, a demand for some more select carcasses. But I, I agree that at least for now, the, the demand is on the, the choice and upper. That's an interesting trend. The, the other thing that we wanted to talk about today a little bit, because this is a question and it, and it pops up relatively frequently, especially this time of year, how many heifers should I save? So how, how do you guys, when you get that question, how do you respond to it? Well, I, I would start with um, a, a few questions. One is, is how, many, how many open cows do you have? And uh, what, is, what is your strategy for heifer replacement? So, I mean, we've got to replace the cows that are leaving the herd. So open cows, cows that are cold for other reasons. We're going to have to, so that's Typically, the beginning. let's say I've just got a couple. I mean, yeah. I, I've got 5% Five open to, cows. Yeah. Probably going to still cull a little bit deeper in that. I think there's some more voluntary culling. You go down another 5% or so. So I think but they're I, pregnant. I, you'd start with, yeah. Um, not all of those are, because you're saying like a 5% open, but then I've, I've lost a few cows. So those cows that didn't bring me a calf, they might be on the culling block. Some cows that have, um, you know, a bad udder or bad eyes. So there's going to be bad another attitude. handful. Yep. You know, th there's going to be another couple of hands. Did you say bad attitude? Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a good reason. Yeah. So, so I think you're probably going to talk about at least 10% as a starting place. Then the question becomes, because the national average is closer to 15 and some herds are more like 20. But for a commercial herd, I think you want to keep that number relatively low, um, because of the increased productivity of mature cows versus uh, replacement heifers. So I'd, I'd like to keep it closer to that 10 to 15 and not 15 to 20. Uh, but then the number, so that's one question is how many replacements do I need? But then the other question is, so how am I gonna develop these heifers? So if I shoot for a high target weight, like 60% of their mature body weight, 60 to 65% of their mature body weight, I can get a lot of those heifers to cycle, become pregnant early in the breeding season, particularly if they're enough, old enough. Um, and so if I need 10% uh, replacements, I'm going to go uh, 15 to 20%. You know, so I'm going to double that, 50% to doubling it to start with. Save twice as many heifers as what you want to keep yeah. because and you want I can, them to get bred early in that. And I can put some selection pressure on those that got bred early. If I'm going to... If I'm going to Especially if you're them, a small producer, yeah. right? Because the, the binary responses move your percentages right. a lot. Now, right? if you're so. a bigger herd, you can bump that down a little yeah. bit. And then the other side of it is, though, but there's a lot of producers that want to put some selection pressure on, on frame size and age at puberty. So they're going to actually not shoot for 60 to 65% of mature weight. They're going to shoot for 55% of their mature weight. And when you do that, you're going to have fewer of them get pregnant. So then I'm probably for sure going to say double. Yeah. So I want to I go back to the so so number of heifers to save, and I want to get Bob Weber's response as we go through because some of the things you threw out, ten ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent. So with those different levels and what we so see, you know so in a hundred cow herd you're talking ten, fifteen, or twenty replacement heifers to bring in as pregnant replacement heifers. But those percents, if that's my culling percent slash replacement percent, if I'm going for a static herd size, if I have to replace 10% every year, that means cows are staying in my herd about 10 years. That's true. If it's 15%, they're staying in my herd about seven years. If it's 20%, they're staying in my herd about five years. So if that's my, if that is my culling rate, it, it drastically changes based on how long those cows are staying in my herd. So and what, again, so from yeah. a commercial standpoint, I want my cows in the herd a long time, but that may not be the same thing that a, a purebred producer is looking for. 
Right, and I think Bob, your your numbers are are, are right. Um, and Brad, you know, the the older you are able to maintain cows, um, obviously the fewer replacements you have, and so things that contribute to that are you know good nutrition and management programs. Um, you know, crossbred cows last long. All those things help extend the longevity of of commercial beef cows. Um, one of the things that you you didn't hit on was you know keeping. Mature cows increases productivity, right? Because they, they wean heavier yes, calves. Yes. But we also forego the cost of building a replacement heifer, which will sort of bug your eyes out yeah, when you figure out how much they actually cost to produce. To, to, I'd rather. From I'd rather weaning have, until their second calf's a lot of money. I'd rather have a mature cow that got pregnant again than to have to replace her absolutely. with a replacement heifer. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's not atypical in, in seed stock programs to see a 20 to 25% replacement rate because we got two things going on. You got all the typical sort of culling stuff, right? Um, and maybe a little more aggressive because we don't want to pass on, you know, bad feet or udders or teeth, eyes, you know, attitudes, all those things. But we're also trying to turn over the generations a little bit to accelerate genetic response to selection. Um, so generation intervals, the limiting step in that process. So um, being more aggressive, you know, there's a fair number of seed stock producers that will sell all their five-year-old cows um, and, on and an annual basis, keep the herd young, young. Um, so that they can can't realize that genetic improvement. And I think that is one of the big differences between a commercial herd and a purebred herd. A commercial herd is really trying to keep their average cow age pretty high. Yep. And a, and a purebred herd wants it to be pretty young because that means that they're bringing in new genetics and supposedly better genetics quicker. Yeah. And one, one of the challenges with that on the seed stock side, though, is we, we've begun to, to, to realize and, and talk a lot more about cow stability or cow longevity is an important trait. And we and know if you don't keep them, you can't measure if it. If you don't keep them, you can't measure it. And so we're torn a little bit in the seed stock sector about, you know, keeping cows to older ages. Um, one of the things we've observed in the data as we look at, at stability or sustained cow fertility measurements, um, a lot of the fallout is not when cows are old. It's, it's obviously when they're young. When cows yeah. are young. So a lot of the new genetic evaluation models actually capture and use information on sires, daughters at young ages. So, so did basically, have a pregnancy, they make it, two-year-old, three-year-old rebreeding. If they make it to five, they probably would have made it to 10. They're home free. Even if I call them at five Correct. for other reasons. Yep, exactly. Okay, I'm, I'm following you. Yep, yep. So, but if they don't make it past two, they never would have made it to 10. So well, yeah. I, yep. I think you've been to college, haven't you? I have. <laughs> So some of the just to kind of summarize that you're you're saying Bob commercial herd ten to fifteen percent depends on your culling rate depends on and, and assuming you want to maintain a, a static, static herd yeah. size and then in the purebred side or seed stock we we might be in that twenty twenty five percent where I've got half my herd that is pretty pretty young, young. two and three year old you go yeah. forward because because of the genetic turnover I think I think it's important to have a strategy as you go forward make sure that 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 it fits your herd as you're raising those heifers. And we've talked some about raising replacement heifers. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more in future episodes. One of the things at the end of that process, we get to calving and we talked about calving last time a little bit. We're gonna to go to our BCI cattle chat checklist that looks at what, what should you have in your calving kit? I welcome to the BCI cattle chat checklist and we wanted to put together today a list of things you might wanna have in your calving kit your calving box or getting prepared for calving season? Dr. Weber? Uh, I think the first thing on my list is an extra set of coveralls and dry boots. Um, my tolerance for a lot of things going south, and, and if you've got to get your calving kit out, um, things are going south. Um, warm and dry makes me happy. Wet and cold, I get really grumpy. So, yeah. I'm thinking 
colostrum replacement for those calves that uh, don't get off to a good start and we need to uh, get some extra colostrum into them. Exactly. Number number eight on our list as we count down be the esophageal feeder. So have a feeder, know how to use it, be prepared so that it, because if I want to have to give colostrum, I want to have that there, be sure it's clean and dry, put away from last year. Yep. Uh, number seven, um, how about some ear tags? So it's a great time when they're newborns. Uh, uh, put some identification in them, uh, particularly if you're having trouble being able to find the one that you just pulled or treated with colostrum. Um, if they're not doing well, they're easy to find. If they're up and running, um, it's nice to be able to go out in the pasture. Oh, there's 74. He's doing great. Yeah. Kind of along the same lines. Number six. Uh, a record, you know, a notebook or cards or something to keep records of those cattle, particularly that needed some assistance. Maybe that's a, a knock against the mother. Maybe I won't keep her uh, or keep extra, uh, keep an extra eye on the calf, but basically a way to record what's going on. Number five, and it could be higher ranked than this because of the importance is lube and have lots of lube lots available. Of lube. So as you, as you have those difficult calvings and the rule of thumb is however much lube you think you might need, Get at least twice that much because if you've got a difficult calving always use more lube and it helps out good for the cows yep um to go with that uh how about number four here um uh, a plenty and abundant supply of ob sleeves so um that kind of goes with my clothes warm dry sleeves help a lot you betcha <laughs> well and then if we're going to help with a calf we're going to need uh, some calf chains or calf straps to put over their legs to get a good grip so we can pull those calves out with that, also the calf chains. So the calf chains and the calf handles going together. You got to have both of those. So get your get your components and, and. It seems like I lose those handles a lot. Exactly. Be sure we've got enough of those. Yep. Um, number one, um, your veterinarian's phone number. Um, and well, maybe I'll add to that. Not only your veterinarian's veterinarian's phone number, but it's probably good that they know you before you call them with an emergency C-section or calf extraction. Uh, if you got to call them on a Saturday night late and they're at their kid's basketball game. Um, they might be more inclined to help you if they know you, they, right? They, and how to get to your house in the dark without directions. My experience is that veterinarians greatly prefer working with those clients that have been uh, long-time clients and that they've done a lot with. They know a lot about the cattle and they know a lot about the people. Excellent. So those are the top 10 things in our cabin kit. And we're back. And we're back. The, the last thing that we wanted to talk about today was the decision support tool that you put together, Bob, and you want to tell us a little bit about that and tell us, tell us about that project and what it does. Sure. Thanks, Brad. Uh, so, um, um, uh, uh, Matt Spangler, a, a colleague of mine at uh, University of Nebraska, uh, Larry Keene, uh, Mark Thalman, Warren Snelling at the Meat Animal Research Center, and I uh, submitted a, a grant proposal to USDA um, uh, about a year and a half ago. So these things take a while to get sort of through the whole review cycle and, and funded. Um, but it was in a in a in um, uh, an area called Critical Ag uh, Research and Extension. I think Dr. Yes. Uh, Larson's got uh, had a grant funded through um, uh, for some decision-making tools. Um, and so we followed that kind of idea that, um, you know, in the beef sector, um, one of the challenges we have in genetic improvement is we have all kinds of data. Um, we have, you know, 12 or 14 or 15 different EPDs and selection indexes produced by a variety of breeds. Um, we have lots of information. One thing we don't do well is help producers sort of make economic sense of it all. Kind of um, integrate it all into integrate their Integrate it all into a perspective. Um, and so... 
the grant that we got funded was uh, to build an online decision support tool for beef producers um, around beef cattle selection. Um, and so our idea is to basically enable producers to create customized selection indexes. Um, we know that the existing uh, generalized indexes that breed associations produce uh, do a pretty good job. They're pretty robust across environment and cost input, but they could be better. Um, and I think one of the things that, that makes them better is producer engagement, right? So where producers have knowledge and information to submit um, to a, a prediction model that enables the, the model to be a little more precise, we've actually done two things. One, we've engaged them, right? And so they have more confidence and belief in the in the index and the system. Um, and we've made it better for their particular production circumstances. Because you've got some of their data yeah, in we've it. Got some so when data. you talk about wanting some data, are you asking purebred producers, uh, seed stock producers, or commercial producers to participate? Great. So um, we've developed a survey to help sort of answer some of our questions related to um, what aspects of sort of online decision-making producers might respond to. Um, and we've uh, built this online survey tool that we'd like uh, a broad audience to, to complete. Um, that includes cow-calf producers, seed stock producers, extension educators, veterinarians, um, VOAG teachers, um, so large allied herd, industry. So small herd, any part of the country. Any, any, if you're involved in the beef value chain, feed yards, stocker producers, if you're involved in the beef value chain, I'd encourage you to go complete the survey. Um, we break out the demographics by kind of ownership structure and segment of the value chain. Um, but we, we'd like a, a really diverse set of perspectives because ultimately what we want to do is build a really good tool. So basically, you're going to get better answers if you've got more input to build that exactly so i'll put uh, uh in our show notes for this week uh, a copy of our press release um uh, announcing the availability of the survey it's got a link in it we'll put the link on the show notes as well if you want to go straight to it and skip the um the press release that's great but uh we'd encourage you to go go complete that um survey because it, it's going to do two things for us really one is help us get a better understanding of the level of need and uh, potential engagement from stakeholders um and also um there's some questions in there that'll help guide our extension um, and product development cycle um, so we do a better job communicating with stakeholders about the product and, and, and how to use it. So it'll be really valuable to and us. And the results of that will be disseminated how, where? Oh, super. So it's a three-year grant. Um, the online tool will be obviously an online web portal. Um, it's a, a three-year grant. So we're going to be um, working hard over the next couple of years in, in development of the simulation and modeling part of that tool. Um, and there'll be a series of educational programs uh, in late in year two and early in year three um, where we actually go out to the country and train people on how to use the tool. So. Excellent. And I think that'll be a subject for further discussion. It'll be interesting yep. to share some of those results here as we start to fight. Yeah, there's already, out. I've, I've kind of took a, we had an advisory board meeting last week, um, and we had a hundred and some respondents already after being out for just three or four days. Um, so I took a peek under the hood to see what kind of responses we'd gotten. Um, and there's some really interesting perspectives in there. So uh, we'll, we'll uh, highlight some of those as we move ahead. So. Excellent. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. And we hope everyone has a great week and we'll talk to you next week.